Welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm delighted that you are here. Uh, I'm Rita McGrath, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be sharing an hour with uh, Rebecca Henderson, author of the Just on the Brink of Being Published book, uh, Reimagining Capitalism, which I can't think of a more important uh, topic uh, to think about right now. Um, while we're getting gathered, uh, so my name is Rita McGrath. I'm a professor at Columbia Business School. Uh, Rebecca is at Harvard. Um, and um, so this, this um, uh, webinar will be recorded, so don't put anything in the chat or <laughs> say anything you don't want posterity to recall. Um, and we will go on for about an hour. Um, the, the topic is really Rebecca's book. And if you have questions, if you could put them either in the Q&A or the chat, I'll try to keep an eye on them. I can't promise I'll get everything, but we will look at them after the session and get back to those of you that have a particular question to uh, deal with. Uh, so Rebecca, welcome. Thank you, Rita. And where are, you joining us? where are you joining us from? I'm in, uh, I'm just, <laughs> such a basic question and I freeze. <laughs> I'm in southwestern New Hampshire in one of the Monadnock towns and I can oh. see Monadnock out my window. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Well, I'm in Princeton, New Jersey. And um, you and I have such a long and wonderful history. So here's, here's what I found. So I went back into the archives and I found the conference on the resource-based view of the firm, which was held at the Wharton School in 1991. <laughs> um, and I think that's, the, that's when you and I first met. And you were a brand, newly minted assistant professor at MIT, as I recall. And I think, well, I, I know I was in my doctoral program, and I think I was maybe the conference organizer or something. Um, but that conference fundamentally shaped my subsequent research, which, as you know, was about building new uh, corporate uh, capabilities. So... I, I couldn't resist bringing that out and <laughs> sharing it. May I say, I'm amazed you have it, like super <laughs> impressed. <laughs> well, it was such a pivotal conference for me. So that was, mm -hmm. that was um, really, really great. Yeah, and and um, it was yesterday. Yeah. It, was, it doesn't seem like that long ago, does it? Yeah, but no, but that was long before I even joined Columbia or anything. Um, so let's uh, turn to sort of what your book's about, but put it, put it in a bit of context, I think. Um, so... We've, uh, many of us who are worried about this issue have been kind of thinking about the great post-war consensus that really, you know, capitalism should be designed to promote shared prosperity and that, you know, that meant workers' rights, it meant all stakeholders involved, it meant, you know, a kind of a broad consensus that shared prosperity was uh, useful. And um, then we kind of got into this mode where it got to be all about profits and Milton Friedman and, you know, the, the only responsibility of a corporation is to its shareholders and so forth. And I'm just curious, um, you know, you've, you've been super thoughtful about challenging this and I am sort of would love to just hear in your own words what kind of, how do you think we got here and what can we start to do about it? <laughs> in uh, okay, so the the history of American capitalism in three minutes here. <laughs> no, it doesn't. You you can take five. That's okay. <laughs> so let me begin by saying that I'm a huge fan of capitalism. You know, sometimes when I talk about reimagining capitalism, people say, "Well, why should we reimagine it? Why don't we just throw it out the window?" <laughs> and I know that many young people, in particular, are deeply concerned by what they see happening and and wondering why we should hold on to it. So I think it's important to remember that capitalism is, I think, one of the greatest inventions of the human race, that we have developed no better system to allocate resources efficiently, 
um, prices are amazing. I mean, they, Milton Friedman was right. They really do coordinate thousands of transactions across many countries. Um, and the force of competition in driving innovation and productivity is, I think, amazing. So in some ways, I'm a huge fan. My problem is I think that right now, we've let capitalism get a little out of balance. Mm -hmm. and, and the sort of signature issue that captures that for me is, is one of my favorite cartoons. It's of some children sitting around a campfire and they're in rags. And in the background, you can see the ruins of what's clearly civilization. And one of the children is saying to the others, we did destroy the planet, but we, we created a great deal of shareholder value while it lasted. And, you know, that just captures for me as like, that can't be right. You know, the idea that the duty to maximize shareholder value requires you to belch out enormous quantities of pollution regardless to dump stuff into the river, to drive the living conditions and wages of your employees absolutely to the bottom so that when there's a major pandemic, they don't have a health leave. They can't take sick leave. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, what? I know. You, you know, what's that about? So, you know, the fundamental idea behind capitalism, I'm a huge fan, but I think what's happened is that we got so excited about the potential for market to solve problems we forgot that free markets need free politics. We forgot that for a market to work, it needs a functioning government and a strong civil society and some kind of voice for employees just to hold it in balance. I mean, let me be very precise. Our current problem is that almost anyone can just throw greenhouse gases out the window without paying the social cost, which is very significant. Mm -hmm. Right now, when you burn fossil fuels, you cause immediate damage to people's health. Plus, you build up this greenhouse gas uh, effect, which is heating up our planet and causing immense damage. And you're a business person. You don't have, you need a price signal. Mm -hmm. You need to know that, okay, the society doesn't want me to do that. They should come tell me. Mm -hmm. The problem is, one of the best ways to make money is to change the rules in your own favor. So here's a sort of contradiction at the heart of extreme capitalism. You tell me that I have a moral duty to make money, to give returns to my investors, cool. The easiest way to preserve my returns is to dump money into climate denialism and into funding the campaigns of politicians who will support me. Or to make sure that antitrust law isn't appropriately enforced. Or to make sure that I'm regulated as a, uh, simply as a platform and not as a media outlet. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, wait, but that surely is not what Milton Friedman meant. Right. I'm pretty sure not. if we had him right here, he would say, no, 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 I didn't mean you should fix the rules of capitalism. Mm -hmm. so well, he I, actually said that. He said that very explicitly in his very famous um, New York op-ed, right? And he said, he mentioned, you know, within the rule of law. And, yeah. but, I do, I, but I agree with you. I don't think he ever intended the rule of law to be subject to these forces. Exactly, exactly. So that's what bothers me. It feels as if capitalism got, has got out of balance. And what we need to recover is that, yes, we need to return a decent 
uh, money to our investors totally on board. I'm on the board of two public companies, one of which is a Fortune 200. I'm totally down with the need to take care of your investors, but not at any cost mm -hmm. and not, it has to be right now. Mm -hmm. So we have this very short-term focus. We have, you know, it's all about the investors. Investors are important, but, and I think we'll come to this, I think many investors themselves are saying, whoa, wait, wait a moment. The planet and the society also matter, and we need to really pay attention to the whole system. Well, I think one of the more interesting sort of um, aspects of this current pandemic is it's really revealing that this supposed investor focus is actually creating enormous fragility in the companies that have been you know, doing stock buybacks and, you know, just returning money like hand over fist. I mean, I think it was Boeing, something like $45 billion of buybacks relative to 15 billion in aerospace research. I mean, that talk about being out of balance. That's, that's just what? Um, yeah. So I'm happy to talk about buybacks, mm -hmm. but you should know, I think it's complicated. Mm -hmm. And also know that both the companies where I'm on the board buy back a lot of stock. Mm hmm so here's the issue. I'm on the board of a company called IDEX, which is an amazing company. It makes uh, diagnostic tests for vets. Mm -hmm. Fabulous company, very purpose-driven, very profitable, growing very fast. We throw off more cash than you would believe possible. It's a great business. Mm -hmm. Should we put it in a bank account? Believe me, when we're sitting in the boardroom, we push like, could you do more R&D? Can, are there places we can expand? Can we serve our customers better? You know, what can we do? We ask that all the time. And then when we filled all those opportunities, we send the extra cash back to the shareholders because you don't want to put it in a bank account at 3%. Well, and I'm not so saying they're I, bad. I mean, I think there are legitimate reasons for doing buybacks, you know, uh -huh. um, and, and I think there are also reasons that are a bit more suspect. <laughs> No, 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 no. There are absolutely reasons for more suspect. And your fundamental point that the investor pressure has made the system fragile is 100% correct, mm -hmm. right? Because it has meant that it's very, very hard for firms to make investments that address long-term risk. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a classic example of this. I believe that to a first approximation, this is a huge simplification, there are two ways to run an organization. There's the high road and the low road. And the high road, you treat workers with dignity and respect. You treat them as fully-fledged human beings that you engage with emotionally and intellectually. You try and build a workplace where they have a say in what they do, where they're empowered and part of what's going on. This is not some radical communist idea. This is how Toyota beat the American car industry. You know, and you and I both know that the research behind this is pretty good. Not that every firm should be run this way, not that occasionally it doesn't make sense to just run by the numbers and we're not worried about innovation. We're not worried about productivity or meaning. We just want you to show up and do this one thing. Sometimes you can make money that way, but mostly the increase in productivity and creativity and engagement that comes from treating people in this way, the continuous innovation, fabulous. We also know that most firms aren't run that way. And why are they not run that way? You know the great work of Zainab Tan, who I'm a huge fan of Zainab at MIT. Mm -hmm. And she's shown, I think, very convincingly that there are firms in the retail space 
where we're talking about very unskilled work, work that most people don't really pay attention to at all, and that treating these people with dignity and respect and using a kind of Toyota-like high road system makes a huge difference. And so she tries to get other firms to adopt it. She, you know, goes around showing the data, introducing them to firms where this is happening and saying, look, look what you could do. Mm -hmm. And so often she says, and this has been my experience too, mm -hmm. they say, that would mean changing everything and investing for the long term and really valuing, you know, having consumers, uh, having employees who are managed this way. And I don't know how to measure that. And how do I explain that to my investors? Mm -hmm. Because that's going to be a big change effort. I'm going to have to act in a new way for at least a year, a whole year, maybe two. <laughs> and that's hard to do. When you've got investors who are like, what do you mean? Treat your employees better. Uh, how are you going to measure that? Um, that? That would be an example. I mean, climate would be another. When you have the bank of the, the governor of the Bank of England running around saying that climate presents a catastrophic risk to the financial system, when insurance companies are no longer insuring vast swaths of real estate. I mean, I have a friend whose house, his dream house, burned down in Sonoma in the California fires. Oh. And he doesn't think he can rebuild because he can't get insurance. Mm -hmm. You know? Well, our, um, our Federal Reserve uh, chairman got into a, a bit of hot water because uh, they went very public and they said climate change is a systematic risk to the economy and that, that therefore it needs to be on their list of things that we're worried about. And I mean, one of the exciting things is so many people like the chairman of the Federal Reserve and many investors are beginning to see this risk. But I think until a few years ago, maybe two years ago, most investors were like, why are you investing in climate change? Why, rise, why raise the amount you pay for energy? Mm -hmm. And so do I think our system is fragile? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think the pandemic has, alas, exposed many of the roots of that fragility. It has. It has. Yeah. So let's, um, so the book comes out on Tuesday. Yes. Um, why don't you give us sort of a walk through it? Um, just so we get a little taste of what, uh, what to expect oh. when we order it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. So, um, the book is about what ordinary people, ordinary business people, so how business people can save the world or help save the world. Now, I know that's crazy. When I was trying to uh, sell this book, I was with a very big publisher in New York, and he looked at me and he said, Rebecca, um, <clears throat> business saves the world. Uh, don't you read the papers? <laughs> and and so, so let me begin by saying I think that to solve the problems we face, we need a real political, social, and cultural movement to rebalance capitalism, to build a government that is business-friendly, transparent, and capable, but focused on the public good, on preventing climate change and other environmental problems, on taking care of our least vulnerable, on addressing the environmental damage we have in ways that are transparent and business friendly. I think that's where we need to go. And that would be coupled with employee representation and uh, free media and some agreements on the basic facts. I know this sounds like total dreaming. That's why I say it. Because I think that's where we need to go. And I wrote this book and I started teaching this course mm. because I don't think we can get there without business help. 
I think business is the most powerful institution of our time. It's more trusted than almost any other institution. 73% of employees trust their, trust their firm to do the right thing. So I think business has a responsibility and has the power to really take us to a better place. And that better place is the market in balance with sensible regulation and appropriately designed policy. So the book is about, well, how do we get there? Like, that sounds great, Rebecca, but have you looked out the window? You know, we have some issues. So, so how do we get there? Okay, so how to save capitalism in four easy steps. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm signing up right now. <laughs> okay. Um, well, but, but seriously, I, I tried to write the book so it isn't, it's realistic. Mm-hmm. None of these steps is easy. I tell a bunch of stories. Um, about people really struggling with these issues, but, but at least five steps. Here's the first one. Um, I call it create shared value, which is a term that my colleagues, Michael Porter and Mark Kramer came up with. And it's the idea that you can build your business model in a way that both makes money for investors, but also creates social good. And so a classic example of that would be um, now my friend, a man called Eric Odsmanson, who's a Norwegian. And he decided that he wanted to get very involved in what some people call the circular economy. Mm-hmm. And that is really focusing on re- recycling as a way both to reduce emissions. It turns out that garbage emits an enormous amount of methane, which is a greenhouse gas, and that we need a bunch more raw materials, but rather than digging them out of the the mountains, we could dig them out of the garbage. Mm -hmm. And so a circular economy, he decided that that was a great way to make money. And that would be an example. I mean, and and he built the most successful garbage company in Scandinavia on the back of this idea. And it's been very successful. Well, to be fair, um, it's a tough business right now because commodity prices have fallen. So right now it's not so great, but you can see it's going to be a very successful business. And before everything went south, it was doing very well. Um, so can I ex- offer an example from here, from, from the U.S.? Um, there's a wonderful little company not too far from me, based out of Trenton, New Jersey, called TerraCycle. Uh-huh. And uh, their CEO has, has um, advocated something called the Loop System. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with it. Oh, I love Loop. Yeah. Yes. So he was one of the big uh, influencers behind it. Um, and Loop, just for those of you that aren't familiar with it, Loop is instead of having packages that you throw away, you have refillable packages. Um, and so you use up your dish detergent or whatever, you send it back, uh, postage paid, the company then refills it with whatever the product was and resupplies you. And what's interesting to me, um, among many other things about this idea, is you can actually do much more with package design if they're not disposable packages. You know, there's a lot more that you can do. Uh, and so they're being very creative about different uses of materials, different applications, uh, because if the thing isn't meant to sit on a store shelf and get thrown away, it opens up a whole new vector of innovation. Well, so, so you're telling the story of my third chapter, which is oh. the first step, oh. which is when you start looking, there are billion dollar opportunities to make money and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was the, as you, as you know, I was the Eastman Kodak professor of management for 20 years. <laughs> I studied firms who saw change coming towards them and couldn't react. Mm-hmm. And I think one way of thinking about where we are right now is we're in the midst of a Kodak moment. 
We know we need to move to a more just and sustainable society. But, you know, a lot of people are going like, I can't do that. I won't make money. But for the firms that take the leap, those are the firms that reap the returns of taking the risk and the creativity. I mean, you do this for a living, Rita. I mean, you must talk about this all the time. Mm-hmm. But I think of this as that kind of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Firms like Luke, firms like Impossible, uh, Impossible Meats and... Right. Um, you know, that are completely rethinking, um, do we really need to eat beef? Could we eat engineered proteins instead and make an enormous difference? So my first step is all about that. And it's, it goes through the business models that uh, different firms have looked at, at billion-dollar scale to make money while doing the right thing, and uh, gives tons of examples and, and tries to suggest that, you know, they're out there. And, in fact, that, that's a great place to start. Mm-hmm. The second place I go to is a discussion about purpose, because I came to believe as I worked in this area that although there were lots of great business models out there, without the courage and the willingness to take risks that having a greater purpose than simply making money gives you, firms wouldn't move. And so if I go back to my example of Eric in Norway, Um, You know, it sounds so neat when I say it. Well, the industry was old-fashioned. People were just picking up the garbage and throwing it into pits. He saw recycling was the future. He he changed the industry. Believe me, it wasn't like that when it was happening. Mm -hmm. When he first uh, became a CEO of a small company in the industry, he found out it was incredibly corrupt, that people were lying um, about what kind of garbage they were shipping medical waste to Africa, labeled ordinary garbage. They were dumping toxic chemicals into the fields of Oslo. And he said, you know, we can't keep doing this. Uh, we need to clean up the industry. And, you know, I have these great ideas. And the rest of the industry did not react well. He had to have police protection. He got oh, sure. His children had to have police protection at school. And so for me, yes, there's a business case, but the second step is understanding that as long as we're just focused on the short term and me, 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 now, 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 as long as we don't understand that business, yes, needs to make money, you know, we all need to breathe, but the purpose of life is not breathing. (laughs) You know, businesses need to make money, check. But the purpose of business is to help support a thriving, prosperous, free society. And and that needs our attention and our engagement. And the good news, as we talked about earlier, is when you invoke that purpose, you generate the productivity and the innovation and the creativity and the willingness to invest in the long term. So that's the second step. So just um, before I forget, um, so Zainab is actually a friend of mine, and she's going to be on one of our fireside chats coming up. Uh Uh-huh. I've asked her to come and talk about the good job strategy. So she will oh, be. Oh, fantastic. So her work is so great. I mean, I think it could change the lives of millions of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference- we're also having um, Jeff Pfeffer come. Oh, oh fantastic. Well. Okay. So you've, uh, you've got a fabulous lineup. Jeff is so <laughs> great. Line. But I think it's so important. You know, we talk about changing the whole system and my book is about changing the system. Mm-hmm. But when firms improve the way they manage, they change the lives of people right now, right here. So sometimes people say to me, well, what can I do? And my book is really a story about how these individual actions will add up to system change. But the individual actions are incredibly valuable, right? You know, 
developing loop and changing how we um, get our shampoo and, and our soap is, is really worth, well worth doing. And moving your firm to a high road strategy, even your division, even your team, I mean, people spend most of their lives at work. One of the major determinants of their happiness is their relationship with their supervisor. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this makes an immediate difference in people right now. Anyway, sorry, I just love Zainab's work. So, so where are we? We've got... we got clean, clean, value and purpose. Well. Do it with purpose. Mm -hmm. Third point. Firms who start doing this often make a lot of progress. But then they discover that, whoops, it's not enough to solve our problems. So what can we do? So if you're Nike, for example, and you get into enormous trouble because you're using child labor in the supply chain, you respond and you say, whoa, okay, we're going to stop. I mean, that's crazy. Get children out of our supply chain. Or if you're um, Unilever and you decide you're going to use sustainable palm oil, and you have to use sustainable palm oil because your brand is under threat. You've got activists dressed in gorilla suits, climbing your headquarters and making a fuss. Got to do sustainable palm oil. Trouble with sustainable palm oil? It costs nearly 20% more than conventional palm oil. At least it did when they made the decision. You can't afford to raise the price of one of your major inputs by 20% if your competitors do not. Do not, right. What do you do? You want to use clean energy, but you're in a highly competitive industry. If you increase your energy costs and your competitors do not, what do you do? You're Walmart, you're in the retail space. You want to raise wages for your employees. You can do it a bit, but your margins are razor thin. Unless everybody else does it, you can't do it. So many of these problems we face are, and I'm gonna use the technical term, I hope that's okay, public goods problems right? They're problems, they're, they're things that all of us will benefit from, but none of us can do alone. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do? So one way to think about the moment we're in is we have this massive sequence of public goods problems. Mm -hmm. We have to stop emitting carbon, but hey, if I, make, if I do something, it won't matter unless everybody else does it, you know, and how can I do it alone? So the rest of the book is about, okay, how does business help solve that problem? Mm -hmm. First idea, why don't we all cooperate? Why don't we all get together? So Nike reaches out to all the other big apparel firms and says, you don't want child labor in your supply chain either. Let's form the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. Let's all decide we're not going to use children and we will all get the brand benefit from that and we will clean up the whole supply chain. Mm -hmm. Unilever reaches out to all the other consumer goods companies and they get nearly 70% of the world's traded palm oil, the buyers of 70% of the world's traded palm oil to say, you're right. We don't want to use a conventionally grown palm oil. It's a major driver of deforestation. It happens under horrible conditions. It causes all kinds of water and air pollution. You're right, we're with you. And the hope is that if we all go to get together, if we make these things pre-competitive, then we can make real progress. And you're seeing these efforts all over. You see them all over agriculture, in cocoa. You see them in mining, where they're trying to get their human rights problems under control. Uh, you see them in corruption, where all the firms have got together and said, okay, I won't pay bribes if you don't pay bribes. You could imagine doing this, just to be provocative, in money and politics, right? Let's all get together. We promise not to do it if you don't do it. Mm -hmm. So here's the issue. Good news and bad news. 
The good news is that the firms that have been exploring this have made real progress. So Nike and the apparel firms have learned a ton about how to enforce good behavior in the supply chain, about how to audit, about how to work with their suppliers so the suppliers are not hurt. Similarly, firms like Unilever and Walmart has been a leader in this space, have learned a ton about how to take greenhouse gases out of their supply chain. They learned a great deal about how to grow sustainable palm oil. And that's great, super useful. Bad news? For me, the bad news is, is, is captured in a lunch I had some time ago. And Rita, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I had lunch with one of the world's experts on self-regulation, on business getting together to solve problems. And I told him that I thought self-regulation could like solve the world's problems and this is how we were going to do it. It was going to be pre-competitive and we were going to solve climate change. And he looked at me and he giggled. (laughs) Because self-regulation is hard. You know, it's difficult. Um, What happened in the palm oil case is that it turned out that the Chinese and the Indians didn't care about sustainable palm oil. And they were buying 20% of the production. And it was fine for the Western companies to be buying sustainable palm oil. But as long as there were people willing to buy palm oil produced in really bad ways, that was enough to just keep the deforestation going. And in the apparel case, it, it turned out that you could audit the factories. You could give your incentives, your supplies incentives to behave well. But it was super hard. As long as the local inspectors were willing to take bribes, as long as there were subcontractors that no one knew who they were, I mean, that it was just so difficult politically on the ground that as soon as you sort of knocked down one problem, something else would spring up. And so about two, three years ago, I found myself in rooms with groups of business people saying, this isn't going to work. We need someone to punish those firms who won't behave. We can do it a little bit, but who's going to punish us? You know, there were consumer goods companies that signed on for sustainable palm oil, but weren't following up, like, and no sanction. Maybe the NGOs would make a fuss, but they'd say, you know, so sue us. Um, you know, and we need, we need an enforcement mechanism. I mean, technically, if you think about this as a problem of the commons, we all need to take care of our public good. We all need to do so because if one or two people don't do it, everyone else is like, well, why should I go along if they're, uh, you know, no one likes to be a patsy. No one likes to be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. So they said, okay, there are two, two groups that could effectively force us to behave. Mm -hmm. And, and the good news is we want to behave. We see the business case. The good news is there's the firms that are out in front. They have a business case for looking around and going, okay, who's going to force the people behind me to behave well? So that's great, right? So two, um, two, uh, two, two, sorry. Look to two people, two groups that could keep the rules, keep everyone in line. Who are they? Well, the first group, of course, is government. And so I was in rooms where people were saying, you know, maybe we need to improve local government capacity. And I'll come back to that because that's super tough and very controversial. Let me go to the other group, which is the investors. Mm -hmm. 
I know I've been laying into investors and saying they're short-sighted and they don't get it and they're part of the reason the system is so fragile, and I think that's right. But I also think it's the case that there's a really important group of investors that has the economic incentive to push everybody to behave well. And here, my card-carrying example is Hiro Mizuna, who until a few weeks ago was the chief investment officer of the Japanese government pension fund. That's about $1.7 trillion in assets. It's the largest pension fund on the planet. And Hiro found himself with a kind of conundrum. He was managing all this money and he was working, he was paying all these people to manage the money. And how were they trying to do that? They were trying to do that by either just holding a portfolio, a passive portfolio, like let me give you the Fortune 500, we'll, we'll buy the Fortune 500 for you and never touch it. Mm-hmm. He was like, okay, that's, I understand that. Or we're going to pick the firms that outperform the rest of the market. And Hira said, this is crazy. The real outperformance is avoiding the crashes. Mm. I have $1.6 trillion in assets. I'm not going to make more money because I held Amazon and didn't hold Walmart. I sort of have to own every stock in the universe because I have so much money. And besides, if you look over time, the way in which firms, you know, technically um, beta, the returns to, you know, getting the right strategy and the firms that outperform, that's smaller than, excuse me, avoiding the great crash of 2008. Mm -hmm. That's much smaller than avoiding the pandemic. Mm -hmm. That's much smaller than avoiding climate change. Mm -hmm. The real risk to the returns of his portfolio are exactly these problems we were talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, Japan is very vulnerable to climate change. I don't know if you've seen, but they've had massive storms Mm -hmm. that have really disrupted the country. They have to import all their energy. Um, and, and as he said, I, I love, cause it's, it's real people doing this, right? He said, you know, Rebecca, what good is it to make money if the children of my beneficiaries can't play outside, you know? Um, and so he came to believe that he really had to deal with these issues and he pushed his asset managers to start focusing on what's now called ESG metrics, which you might've talked about, um, in this sequence, um, environmental, social and governance metrics, and have you talked about Larry Fink? And his... I have mentioned Larry, uh, but go, go ahead and... Uh, yeah. no, no. Because what's super interesting is, uh, is some of our, our listeners may be aware, um, Larry Fink, who manages the biggest BlackRock, the biggest asset manager in the world, they have more than $6 trillion under management, uh, but they manage it on behalf of other people. He, just this year published a letter with guidance saying that he believed that climate change was one of the largest risks to the returns of the stocks that he was managing. And that with the approval of his customers, he was going to think about voting against the boards of companies that weren't paying attention to it, that weren't managing that risk, that he um, would be actively pushing for firms to develop a risk plan for how they were going to deal with climate change. And I think it's not coincidence that the Japanese government pension fund is Larry Fink's largest customer. Huh. Ah, that's interesting. So you're seeing, and it's not just, I mean, I talk about the, I talk about Hero, 
because it's, it's a very concrete example. But I think by most measures, you've got about 30% of the world's assets being that are owned and managed by people who are waking up to wait. You know, the real risk is the instability of the whole system. Mm-hmm. And, and I always think of this as kind of a double-edged fact. So this is the really creepy thing. Depending on how you count it, you can get about 15 people in a room and they're controlling maybe 60, 70% of the world's financial mm. Of the world's wealth. Yeah, of the world's wealth. So, you know, that, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> and again, it depends how you count it. And, but, but if you let me go up to a couple of hundred, I've got enormous concentration of the world's wealth. Mm-hmm. And I think there are all kinds of downsides to that, which we can talk about, but it has the following upside. You could imagine those people looking at each other and saying, you know what? We need all the firms in our portfolio and all the assets we invest in to take seriously the threat of climate change, to deal with environmental problems. And, and now I probably am dreaming, to think about the problem of inequality and the institutional instability it's driving. Mm-hmm that for them, the fact that they basically own the world means that if it breaks, that's a problem. So, there's a, there's a very this is kind of creepy. You know, it, it kind of troubles me in some deep way, but it also makes me hopeful. <laughs> um, Powerful. And then, yeah, and then the last piece of the book, and the one I'm just going to tease, is... So, so let me just make sure I'm following along. So we've got shared value, purpose, um, enforcement of public goods problems. That's the third yeah, one. Yeah, self-regulation, voluntary cooperation. Okay. I, I call it learning to cooperate, yeah. Okay. Um, and then the last one, but I'm just going to tease it because I'm not sure where you want to go with the conversation, is I think in the end... Um, sorry. Oh, lovely. Hello. Yeah. Well, in the end, the only way we can solve this problem is through reinventing government. Mm-hmm. And I think business will need to play a central role in that. I think it will be tough because business is very powerful and sort of saying, you know, maybe we should get some of the money out of politics and maybe we should have a democracy that's more transparent and responsive to what ordinary people want. Um, and maybe we should have some form of employee representation. Those are all tough things. I can imagine it happening. And uh, in the book, I talk about how it might happen and how it's looked like, what it's looked like historically. But that's like another huge topic. So um, I, I don't know if you want to go there. No, I think I think that's um, I think that's eminently doable. Um, you know, I think one of the things that that is coming to people's attention is, you know, government actually matters. And if you just look across the globe at where the pandemic's been managed well, if you want to think about relatively modest loss of life and less catastrophic economic damage versus where it's been handled badly, um, that does fall to government. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but before I became an academic, I was um, I was actually a bureaucrat. Um, I got my degree in public policy and worked for the city of New York for a number of years. Oh, so Rita, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Absolutely. Um, and one of the cool things about city government is, yeah. well, two cool things about it. Personally, if you're good at all you know your career just skyrockets in the early stages because they give you a lot of responsibility but you can also make policy decisions that you can actually see the consequences of so we came up i was working in procurement at the time i know really sexy um 
But one of the things we did was we came up with an, a couple of analytical metrics across the city's procurement um, practices, which actually made a difference to small business people and, and to um, you know, underrepresented uh, minorities in government. And you could really see the impact of that, which was, which was fascinating. Um, so a couple of questions have come in about, um, you know, uh, do we think, for example, countries like China will cooperate? Um, so yes, I do. Mm -hmm. The Chinese are very much aware about the long-term risk of climate change to the uh, success of their society. China is overwhelmingly dependent on the glaciers in the Tibetan plateau for their water, for example. Oh, I didn't know that. Huh? And the uh, projections are for those glaciers to disappear within the next 50 to 100 years. Wow. Um, the Chinese know that if we do nothing, Shanghai will be underwater by 2050. 2050 is not some distant date. That's only 30 years away. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I, it's a stretch, Rita, but we might well be alive mm -hmm. still. Mm -hmm. And our children certainly will be. Mm -hmm. um, whole of South Vietnam will be underwater. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably baked in. Uh, there will be serious political instability uh, between India and Pakistan and Bangladesh because they're dependent on the water from the Tibetan Plateau as well. Um, and Bangladesh is uh, subject to catastrophic flooding. So China can see, I think, both. And, and what's interesting about the Chinese is, you know, I, uh, I have many questions about the Chinese system of government, but it's clear they take their scientists seriously and they believe the research mm -hmm. um, and so they know that the droughts and floods that are already happening and will get worse and worse will have a major destabilizing effect mm -hmm. so um, as as you're probably aware the reason solar panels are so cheap which they are incredibly cheap you know i have been saying for 15 years that if we start moving in this direction costs will fall and it'll happen much faster than we expect and we're so much more resourceful than people think i mean i was a professor at mit of innovation and strategy i'm like if we want to fix climate change i promise you we can fix it you know <laughs> i really trust the engineers i really do mm -hmm. on this um, the reason solar panels are so cheap is because the Chinese poured money into solar. Absolutely poured money. Now, you can tell me, which is true, that they're still pouring money into coal, and that's true. Mm -hmm. But they have, you know, tough local political constraints. I think it would be immensely helpful. I mean, I believe that if the U.S. were to come to the table in an aggressive, credible way and say to the Chinese, look, we have to address this issue. Let's do it in a way that's fair. Um, that they would respond very warmly um, once they believed it was credible and here to stay. It's gotta be, yeah. I mean, you have to have that trust component. You've got to have the trust component. And, you know, if I were Chinese, I would say, well, I don't know. You know, you say one thing and then you come back and say another. And I think that's a huge problem. But I'm very hopeful that our country will embrace the issue of climate change as an issue that everyone should be worried about. I mean, it didn't used to be that the environment was a, a democratic issue. The Clean Air Act was was passed under Richard Nixon. I'm going to ask you about that, yep. yeah. Yeah, no, and the early plans for um, climate regulation um, and carbon regulation were bipartisan view bills advanced by Republicans and Democrats. There are Republicans right now in the House and the Senate that absolutely um, believe that the government should be addressing the problem of climate change. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we have to think of it as a partisan issue in the long term at all. Mm 
Uh, this is about a catastrophic risk that is coming towards us that we need to invest in, against so that it doesn't catch us as we were caught by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Well, um, one of the things I talk about in, in my book, Seeing Around Corners, is uh, that so often uh, people just turn a blind eye to these kind of Cassandras, you know, to the warnings, because the costs appear to be, and I think, I think you make a very valid point that what we think is a cost often isn't, um, but the costs are born in the present and the benefits are some uncertain future. I mean, even to this day, we have people running around saying all that work we did for the Y2K problem was a waste of time because nothing happened. And I'm like, well, why do you think nothing happened? <laughs> you know? Well, you're getting the same issue in California, right? The lockdown didn't work because look, hardly anybody died in California. Exactly. <laughs> like what? Excuse me? <laughs> you know? But that is the problem. So you're making me aware, Rita, that I have done a very impolite thing. I have come to this conversation without having read your book. Oh, but that's not a problem. But you're making me super curious because, you know, I've always read your academic work and mm -hmm. I, didn't, I, I didn't read the book. But this is exactly what we're talking about. It's about seeing around the corner and persuading people it's worth taking the time to look. Yeah. So one of the yeah, things yeah, yeah. I do talk about in the book um, is the distinction between lagging indicators, which, you know, things like profits and that kind of stuff is, you, it's great data, but you can't do anything with it. Then you've got current information. Right. Sorry? Yeah. It's a review. It's looking in the rearview mirror. It's like trying to drive looking in the rearview mirror. It's exactly. And then you've got current indicators and you can think of things like um, um, employee engagement or, or customer net promoter scores. And then the hardest thing of all to find are these uh, leading indicators. And one of the things I loved about your book was you're very clear on like what are the, you know, what are the leading indicators we should be paying attention to now? Because if we can put up, and, and I'd love you to elaborate a little bit on pricing mechanisms, because one of the things I found very interesting was um, your notion of when is a profit a legitimate profit? And, and, you know, why is mispricing such a big issue? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think about the coal industry. Mm -hmm. You know, the burning of coal causes enormous damage to human health. Mm -hmm. You and I, Rita, almost certainly have uh, elevated levels of mercury and other toxic chemicals in our blood. Mm -hmm. um, statistically, half of all the women on the West Coast have such elevated levels they shouldn't have children, um, that their, their children are at risk of, uh, of some form of, of damage. Um, and having said that, I need to double check it, but it's a very high number. And um, my colleagues in the School of Public Health believe that uh, the damage of burning fossil fuels is between two and a half and six percent of GDP. Wow. I mean, it's a very big number. There's a big error bar because it depends whether you live next to a coal plant and where you are and it's how do you estimate it and so on. But there's no doubt that it's very, very big. So here's the issue, and this is the calculation I did in the book, is let's take, say, a kilowatt of electricity. So let's me, let me imagine my hands are full of electrons that I'm going to use to run my computer. Mm -hmm. If you go to a coal-fired coal station, you say, what does that cost? They'll say on average about five cents. What? Sounds like a pretty good deal. Mm -hmm. You go to the public health people and you say, how much health damage is this handful of electrons causing if it came from a coal plant? Mm -hmm. And they say, conservatively, 
at least five cents. At least. I mean, I have colleagues who think it's more like 14 or 15. Mm. And then I go to my climate friends and I say, how much climate damage is this causing? Mm-hmm. And they go, well, yeah, it's really hard to estimate and who knows and, you know, but, but at least, at least, this is really conservative. It's at least $40 a tonne per, uh, per tonne of carbon dioxide emitted. It's at least $40 a tonne. So that would be about five cents. So every time a coal plant sells five cents worth of electricity, they're creating 10 cents worth of damage. Gotcha. When you add that up, that means that the social costs they're imposing are not only greater than their profits. Mm-hmm. That's true for many firms. When you do this calculation for many firms, mm-hmm. the harms they're creating are the same order of magnitude as their profits. Wow. But for a coal company, it's as big as their revenues. Wow. It's so we really, we really just misprice these things. Um, it's completely mispriced. So, you know, I say, if you're really a fan of capitalism, and you think capitalism runs on prices, you should be a huge fan of a carbon price. Because, you know, you tell the firms, the real price is X. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not capitalism. If firms are making all their money at the expense of imposing harms on the people around them and future generations, that's not the capitalism I want to sign up for. That's why capitalism needs to be reimagined. I'm with you on that. So we have a few minutes left, and I thought what would be fun um, would be, um, I mean, one of the things I really loved about the book was it's very, it's in a way it's personal. You know, it, um, I I mean, it has all these big themes about cooperation and global disasters and all that sort of thing, but you start off talking about trees and and sort of weave your own personal story, you know, throughout. And I thought, so how is this book sort of fit into your life as, a, as an individual? <laughs> I, uh, I spent the first 20 years of my life studying innovation. That's how we met, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I know your work. And, uh, and uh, energy companies started coming to me and saying, you know, we, we, we can see we need to shift. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw Al Gore's movie, uh, An Inconvenient Truth. Mm-hmm. And my brother was sending me papers to read about climate change. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, maybe I should quit. You know, why am I spending my life oiling the wheels of corporate capitalism if it's destroying the planet? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was my friends in NGOs who persuaded me to, uh, to stay. Mm-hmm. It was my, my greenest friends. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, business can be a big part of the solution. And as you know, I've come to believe that's really true, mm-hmm. that I was actually in the right place at the right time, mm-hmm. that if we can help persuade business people to understand the risks involved and the opportunities inherent in addressing these problems, mm-hmm. that together we can make an enormous difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is personal. You know, we tell this big story but it's all about people like Eric coming home to his wife and saying, um, I think we need police protection. Do you mind if we keep going? And she said, no, you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's about, you know, we say Unilever is such a fantastic firm and they do so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know a little bit about that company. It is amazing. And Paul Pullman's an incredibly impressive leader. But one of the reasons Unilever changed is because you know, people like Michael Legents, in my, who's in my book, 
he decided that Unilever could grow sustainable tea, that it wasn't okay, the conditions on the tea plantations. And he personally, in his job as a marketing manager, was going to make a difference. You know, it's these change comes because individuals push. And it's incredibly personal for me because really I wrote the book because of the difference for what people were saying in public which was all about the bottom line and this is the right thing to do and here's the business model and it is the right thing to do and there is a business model. But then we go out for a beer and they'd say, you know, Rebecca, we got to do something. We have to change. How do we do that? How does it add up to change? Mm -hmm. You know, if I do something, how does it add up to change? And that's why I wrote the book is it's really written for my students. It's written for all the young business people I've met who can see what's going on and want to do something. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of roadmap as to how it might add up. Mm -hmm. You know, I've no idea if it's right. I do believe the human race is incredibly ingenious. And that once we start moving and this is our direction, that we'll find a way to get there. That's, um, that's inspiring. <laughs> so to finish up, um, you have a, a section of the book where you talk about um, things each of us could do this afternoon, um, simple things that could cumulatively add up to a big difference. And could you perhaps leave us with a couple of suggestions what those might look like? Sure. Um, register to vote. Politics is hugely important. And there's a question about Citizens United that, that came through. Yeah. Um, I personally believe that one of the most important things we can do is try and repeal legislation like Citizens United. 71% of Americans believe that the system is rigged against them and there's nothing they can do. And when you look at the data, there's a reason they believe that. Money is rife through our system. It's really, it's, it's putting the democracy in question. Got to get money out of politics. Um, so vote. Uh, second thing, um, you are probably an employee. You may run a bit of a business I really mean it when I say there's money to be made in dealing with these problems and there's a better workplace to be built. It's true. All the CEOs get all the credit. All the CEOs I know were pushed. They were pushed by their employees. They were pushed mm -hmm. by people who wanted to work for them. They were pushed by people on the ground saying, we can do this and make money. This is the right thing to do. Let's do it. Um, I think changing your personal behavior is important. I don't think it's the whole answer. I think it's important because when we change, the people around us change too. We know from the data, for example, that those people have announced that they're going to stop flying. I have huge admiration for them. I haven't reached that point yet. I offset, I try and do everything I can to make sure it's okay. Assuming I will one day fly again. <laughs> maybe, maybe this will be the wake up call that I, and I think I will fly a lot less. But those people who decide not to fly, the people in their friend circle drop their flying behavior significantly. Hmm. People who decide not to eat meat, people who decide to put solar panels on their roof. We know you're much more likely to put panels on your roof if you see someone else doing it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, the way I think about it is we have to start a kind of avalanche. We know we need this big social and political movement, but avalanches start by individual pebbles and you never know which pebble triggered the avalanche. And so you know, it's kind of up to us. There's no one behind the curtain. That's the scary thing. Sometimes I wish I was back doing innovation. It was so much easier. I thought <laughs> I knew the answer. I thought I could be immediately helpful. And now here I am like, 
the world is really in trouble. I think we should do something. <laughs> you know? but, I think what your book really shows us is that we can, and there is a path forward. So with that, I, I'm going to thank you so much. This has just been, it's been great to reconnect <laughs> and hear what you've been doing. And I think I remember a lunch we were at when you had first sort of refocused on the environment. And uh, it's just fascinating to see where it's come from there. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Delighted.